Welcome, fellow baseball fans, to episode 53 of the Banish to the Pen podcast, a group baseball blog produced by diehard fans of the podcast, Effectively Wild, the daily show from Baseball Prospectus. I am your host, Ryan Sullivan, editor-in-chief of NatsGM.com and the Baron of All Baseball Podcasts. This week, I am proud to welcome back two friends of the podcast and two excellent authors at Banish to the Pen. I've got Nick Koss, and I've got Rob Maines on the line with me. Glad to have you guys back on the show, guys. Great to be here. Same here. Can't wait to talk some baseball. Hey, Nick, did I get your name right, by the way? Uh, yeah. Oh, good. Thank goodness. All right. As we always know, and I go through every week, I'm terrible with names, so I apologize in advance, guys. So, um... First place we start every week is uh, let's introduce ourselves to the audience. I think they know me well enough, but uh, let's start with you guys in case they missed when you guys have been on before. Um, Nick, how about you introduce yourself to uh, the audience? Uh, Twitter handle, where they can find your work, who you're a fan of, all the fun stuff. All right, so I'm a student at Northeastern University. Um, one semester left that I'll be completing this fall. Um, I write, um, you can find all my work on Banish to the Pen. Um, and then at CasaBoss34, if you want occasional sports insights and just other goodness from a college student. so Very, very cool. Glad to have you back, Nick. Uh, Rob, kind of the same question. Introduce yourself and, uh, you know, all that good stuff. Yeah, uh, Rob Mames. Um, Nick and I are making it easy on Ryan this week because we all got, you know, single syllable names so not not any tricky names to trip over um i write for banish to the pen as well i'm going to be starting up my trailing 30 weekly feature this week where just some of the stats looking back at the last 30 days because you you know it's kind of easy to know who does well in a given month or who's done well year to date but this is just another way of looking at things and i also do some other stuff there i've had a couple uh baseball prospectus features published lately and i also have a pirate's blog called onthefieldofplay.com. You can catch me on Twitter at Cran, C-R-A-N, underscore boy. Well, great to have you back, Rob. Uh, always excited to have you on the show. And uh, I give you some credit. Uh, I, I think since the last time we've had you on, you've had a couple of great pieces on Baseball Perspectives. So once again, another person uh, getting the call up from Vanish to the Pen to uh, the big leagues, we'll say. Thanks. Yeah, it's been exciting. So, uh, well, Rob, I actually, I want to start with you. You said you had some banter uh, off air, and we tried to keep it a little hush-hush in true Ben and Sam style. So um, give us some banter. Yeah, here's here's the question that I want to pose to you guys. And this, for those of you listening, this is as of Sunday morning, uh, May 15th. If the season were to end today, the uh, NL playoffs would be, The Mets would be at the Phillies for the wild card game. The winner of that game would play the best team in the National League, which, of course, would be the Cubs. And the other series would be the Dodgers at the Nationals. Okay. In the American League, the wild card game would be the Rangers at Boston. The winner of that would be playing, I believe, the White Sox. Um, I should double check that. I think, I think you're think right with the, the White team. Sox. I think you're right. Yeah, And the other game would be Seattle playing at Baltimore. And the question that I had for you guys 
is that um, hang on, I'm just checking. Am I right about the American League? That no, I'm wrong. Uh, it would be the wild card game would be the wild card winner would be playing at Baltimore, and then Seattle would be uh, against the White Sox, who would have the home field advantage. My question to you guys is, obviously, of those teams, the biggest surprise is the Phillies. What's the second biggest surprise? And I was thinking about it to my way of thinking. I think it's Baltimore, but I want to know what you guys thought. Uh, Nick, go ahead. Um, Baltimore, that sounds pretty much right to me. I think no one expected them to start the season 7-0. And also in a very competitive AL East this year, I I think they were picked to finish last. Yeah. So, um, but the other name that popped into my, that popped into my mind when you said that would be Seattle, um, just because out west you figured the Astros would have that division on lockdown, and Seattle would be fighting for a wild card with um, the second place team, the second and the third place team from the AL Central, and then. You know, whoever doesn't manage to get out of the East. So, I just, I think, but I think once you said Baltimore, I was like, that makes sense. So, yeah, I think I probably lean towards. I mean, I see so much of Baltimore in this area, and I think the way they're right. winning is more surprising to me than the fact that they're winning. I mean, I'm not surprised that Machado is having such a great season, but the fact that Tillman is one of the top choices right now for the yeah. Cy Young is is kind of blowing my mind in a certain way but I, I the the team that jumps out to me is the White Sox a little bit and I'm surprised at how well they're playing considering it's not Todd Frazier necessarily dominating it's I mean uh Sale has been absolutely outstanding uh Quintana yeah, had another good and Quintana had another great start I think last night yeah uh the bullpen's been better but I felt like it was a little early for the White Sox, and I thought they were certainly behind a couple of other teams talent-wise in that division. So I'm going to go with the White Sox as as maybe most surprising, but the Orioles are definitely a surprise as well. What about you, Rob? Yeah, I thought thought long and hard about the White Sox as well because we talked about on a previous podcast – the crushing blow of losing Drake LaRoche in that clubhouse was really going to sink him. But based – on, I figured in that division, if you'd asked, I think, most people at the beginning of the season, you'd sort of say anybody had a chance in the AL Central. Now, best or second best record in the AL chance, I don't think that I would expect that for the White Sox. But to ju- just the idea of White Sox in first wouldn't have been a huge shock. I think that the O's climbing past, you know, a pretty good Red Sox team, the defending, uh, you know, division leader Toronto and you know you never really count out Tampa or the Yankees although that's becoming easier this year I think that in my mind Baltimore is just the better choice and I agree the way that they're winning that you'd figure they'd be surviving on dingers and the bullpen and certainly they've gotten you know a out of the blue kind of season from Trumbo but they've been a in my mind they've been a lot better on all aspects of play than I would have thought, so they'd be my pick. I guess, yeah, I guess going back to the White Sox, the only reason I wouldn't necessarily, I necessarily don't think they're such a big surprise because um, was because last year everyone thought they would be fairly solid around a 500 team, and that just didn't happen. And then they came in this offseason, got, you know, picked up Todd Frazier, 
and really kind of, you know, kind of upgraded, upgraded from last year. So I guess just at the end of the day, I just figured the White Sox would be towards the top of the the AL Central, but second best record, I guess. You, I guess that's where your argument would have to be made there. Well, and I'm, I thought they would have a much more difficult time. I thought Cleveland would be better, and Detroit is getting good pitching from. I mean, goodness, Jordan Zimmerman's been great, and Verlander's had his moments. I mean, right. I, I'm a little surprised. Like we're saying, and I'm kind of repeating our point is, I'm surprised they have the second best record. I think more so than even the fact that. And Todd Frazier, as of last weekend, was batting, wasn't batting his weight. I mean, I know he had some home runs, but. It certainly isn't just him off to some you know 400 clip and hitting 25 home runs and something. I mean, they lost LaRoche, like you kind of alluded to. It, there's some at least there's some power there. There was some talent. I mean, I, I'm surprised that they are getting it. They're playing as well as they are. But also, um, just to kind of I guess transition into another point, I think it kind of says something that all all the teams we've been talking about so far are in the AL that outside of the NL, outside of the Phillies, you know, really the teams are breaking down kind of how we expected them to. And I think that yeah, kind good of point. and I think that kind of goes with you know, with the whole in the NL you have this hierarchy of the good teams and then the teams who really aren't trying to win this year, I guess for lack of a better term. Whereas in the AL, going into the season, you really couldn't count out that many you know that many of the teams, so it's <laughs> it's shaping up. I think the a I think we're gonna see some sort of big surprise in the AL this year by um, at the end. That's Good a point. That's a great point, Nick. Uh, I want to to build off your point. Are you guys thinking that the Phillies are legitimate? Are they gonna hang around, or is this a team that's gonna all of a sudden, you know, go on a I don't know five and twenty kind of streak and it, you know I'm using the air quotes come back to earth. Uh, Rob, what's your take on the Phillies? Uh, the only teams in the National League with a worse run differential are the Brewers, the Reds, and the Braves. And so, no, I don't think they're gonna. I don't think they're gonna stay this good. Um, I, you know, you, you look at that sort of difference, and you got to figure there's a good dollop of luck. They're pi- I'm looking. They're 22 and 15. Their Pythagorean record is exactly the opposite. And granted, you got teams that can beat that. Sometimes for a season, sometimes over short periods, but I don't think they're going to stay up there all year. I do think they're probably going to be better than, certainly than the people who thought they'd finish last. I think Atlanta has, has you know, pretty forcefully grabbed that to themselves. And I think, they're, I think they're an interesting team. The pitching's been fun. You know, they got a couple of fun hitters. Um, they haven't called up J.P. Crawford yet. Um, but I, I don't think that, you know, if, if they can finish the year as like a 440, 450 winning percentage ball club i think that'd be a huge step forward and i think that's a more realistic expectation nick yeah i think um i agree with rob that they're i don't think they're going to make the playoffs this year sorry to disappoint you phillies fans um but i do think that um the top of the rotation with nola and um uh vincent why am i blanking on his name Vinny from philly velasquez 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 you think i can't believe i blinked on that but with those two guys looking really good at the top of the rotation, and uh, and so I think that they might be able to stay in it, or you know, kind of float around 500 for a while. Um, but I just I 
they're not going to keep up a 22 and 15 clip throughout the entire throughout the entire season. I will, I will say this though, I think they have a really good shot of finishing third in the division uh, ahead of the Marlins. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of somewhere in between you guys, but I, I think I'm a little more optimistic than you both. I've watched the Phillies a fair amount early going, and they're a lot better than I think we any of us thought uh, beginning of the season. They're, they've got some hitters. I mean. Uh, the center fielder, whose name I never pronounce correctly, has turned into a very solid baseball player. Mikel Franco has struggled a little bit, but is legitimate bat. Ruiz has found a little bit of the fountain of youth. Um, you know, Cesar Hernandez is okay at second base. They're not as bad as we think. And that pitching staff, I mean, like we said, Nolan Velasquez are talented, very, very good. They're getting something from Eikhoff and from Hellickson. You know, I know Eikhoff slowed, off, slowed up a little bit. I think the biggest concern is, uh, once again, I never pronounce names right, J- Jane Mar Gomez and uh, Neris, kind of the two guys at the back end of their bullpen are, are on pace for about 95 appearances each. And, and Rob, you kind of alluded to it perfectly. They're, they're playing these one-run games and they're winning them all. I, I don't know how sustainable that can be, but I, I think this is a 75-77 to 77 win team at the end of the year, which is... I don't know, probably 10 wins better than we all projected. So yeah, I also think that their manager is doing a nice job. Some of that's just you look at, I think they've won eight games in a row that are one-run games, and you kind of tip your cap to the manager in that respect. But he's getting more out of this team than I think we thought, and they have some call-ups. You mentioned J.P. Crawford. They could bring up Alfaro later, Nick Williams, uh, and several other pitchers. Alec Asher's pitching well at the AAA level. I mean, this they could be a lot better team in September than – uh, you know, even or at least a more talented team in September than they are today, which kind of goes against when we think of rebuilding teams. So, I, I just tip of the cap to the Phillies. I don't think they're gonna. I wouldn't be surprised if they ended up 500. Even Ryan, don't you sort of feel as if Ruben Amaro, while he was walking out of Philadelphia on his way to the Red Sox first base coaching box, said, "You know, on my way out, I'm gonna restock the farm system." He finally started doing what he needed Man. to do. But the truth of the matter is, is he had done a pretty good job the last year and a half he had been there. I mean, I we all gave him grief about waiting so long for Hamels, but uh, that trade, but that trade seems to be really working out for, certainly for both teams, but obviously for Philly. The Giles trade was fantastic, although I guess that probably isn't under his watch. But, you know, they flipped Papelbon for a Pavetta, and they've made, they made a fair amount of trades. They got Zach uh, uh, Eflin and another pitcher, just moving some you know mid-range pieces so like i say i think he got so much grief that we overlooked that he did a pretty nice job on the way out like you point out right and herrera was a uh that's just say herrera the guy who was the rule five yes a double whatever yeah sorry character flaw on me guys sorry about that so uh let's transition a little bit if we can um great banter i loved it so um Nick, I want to give you um, a little bit of a spotlight and a little time here. You wrote a great piece uh, in the last couple days at Banished to the Pen about David Ortiz retiring and kind of it being through the lens of your eyes and, you know, kind of being the first player, so to speak, that's retired, you know, that took you through your adolescence. So um, just introduce the piece and let's talk a little bit about David Ortiz. So when I sat down to write this piece, I wanted to kind of write about how it's how kind of me and David Ortiz, and the only similarity we have right now, 
is that we're both kind of going through a key part of our life. I'm going to graduate in December and, you know, have to start being a full-time adult. And he's going to, you know, go into the next stage of his life after baseball. And so as I kind of started writing, I kind of realized that, um, you know, when, you know, next year when Ortiz isn't on, you know, isn't going to be on the Red Sox, um, as a small aside, I I still think he's going to retire as of Sunday when we're recording this. I don't think his start's going to change that. Um, anyway, so I think that um, in that how the game's just going to look different because, you know, Ortiz has forever been my favorite baseball player. Um, he's the one jersey I have right now. It's a number 34 Red Sox jersey. Um, he's the only ball um, baseball player whose poster I have up in my um, bedroom. And it's just, you know, how, you know, kind of I've become more, I'm starting to see ball players now more as, like, actual, you know, people and not just these, you know, mythical men that play, that get to play baseball for a living and that's all they do. No, they, there's 21 hours a day, they're not playing baseball, and, you know. So just overall, it was, <clears throat> I just kind of started thinking about it more and realized that I, baseball's going to look a little different to me, if only because there won't be that one guy that I, you know, look up to, because I looked up to him when I was a kid, and still do. His performance under pressure and just ability to, really kind of lead this younger Red Sox team into, you know, for, you know, bringing through a couple rough seasons to where now they're looking pretty good this year. It's just, it's something that I think, you know, I can still benefit from looking at and learning from even now that I'm about to graduate college. So, yeah, I love I the I love the take and the theme because so often as we age, we get more to and, and you know we're all sabermetricians reading these site and probably listening to this. I think as we age, we get more we forget about the human element of the baseball players on the field at times, and we look at them. I don't want to say it's just statistics or just you know players, and I'm using quotes, but I think that's a great take. We forget sometimes that these are you know players and great men and and individuals and and you know fellow human beings. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's exactly it. And I think that's part of the reason just how I view baseball has changed over the past few years is because I have, you know, read more baseball perspectives, started to really kind of get into the, you know, the stats and, the you know, gaining the little edges that, you know, I feel like that Ortiz has kind of helped remind me that, you know, there's a romantic side of the bay to baseball. You know, because he is, I mean, I, I kind of wrote this as a little kind of a side in the piece, but I seriously think if he wanted to be, to run for the mayor of Boston, he, it would not be, you know, it would not just be a publicity stunt. I think he would, I think he would actually have some support just because he's, you know, he's that big a guy, pun intended. Yeah, and certainly, uh he was as popular a figure in Boston, I don't know, a year and a half ago or two years ago than than even maybe even today after the Boston uh, Marathon bombing. So, um, Rob, I, I want to turn this piece a little bit into or this segment a bit more into um, 
is there a player or players that fit this mold for you? I, I love the fact that we have kind of a nice age gap in space here. It, it should be uh, a nice uh, a nice place to start. Yeah, nice. You mean like yawning age gap? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm gonna have I a little more of a cynical is not the right word, but maybe jaded view, and I'll tell you why. Okay, I grew up a Twins fan, and you know the. A guy like Ortiz or another guy who comes to mind is Cal Ripken or Jeter or Rivera. There aren't that many guys whose career ends up on, if not necessarily a high note, then at least a, you know, kind of not just playing out the string note, so to speak, and also end up in the same city where they played for so many years. So I'm old enough that you know the two transcendent stars – when I was watching the Twins, were Harmon Killebrew and Rod Carew, and both of them ended their careers someplace else, not playing particularly well. The last homegrown, the, the, the guys whose retirement really hit me, I thought, were the guys who I thought their career was sort of robbed of them. J.R. Richard is one, who was this, I was for some reason growing up in Minnesota, an Astros fan. And, you know, this guy who all of a sudden became a dominant strikeout pitcher, then had a stroke and was out of baseball. Dickie Thon was this fantastic yeah, uh, shortstop who got hit in the eye with a pitch and was never the same. And then, you know, the, the twin that was like that was Kirby Puckett, who all of a sudden had to retire because of glaucoma. And then we found out afterwards that, you know, he was a hero who definitely had feet of clay. So it sort of, you know, I guess it kind of sapped some of the, the, the joy that or the you know, the feeling that you normally get when somebody who seems heroic uh, leaves the stage because, you know, in this day and age when you've got investigative reporting and all that sort of stuff, you don't know who's going to turn out to be not all that heroic in the first place. Yeah, and Rocky, is it Rocky Colavito? Kind of reminds yeah. me of the same. Uh, the Boston player, you know, was so great first year or two and then got hit in the eye and was never and never yep. the same player. Uh, yeah. I think the players for me that that did it were, and it's kind of Rob. You make a great point about these guys kind of trailing off at the end of their career. But the ones for me were Jeff Bagwell, who was my favorite player growing up as a kid. When he retired, it was it felt like kind of the end of an era to me, and a little bit uh, I didn't couldn't have as eloquently put it as Nick did. But he was kind of that player for me that grew up and just he was so great and and meant something to me as my childhood favorite player and. And Griffey Jr., I think maybe just because of my age and yeah. what he meant to that to our generation of baseball players and kids. Uh, but he kind of trailed off. He, you know, the Cincinnati years were certainly nothing like the Seattle years, but it, that felt a little bit like the end of an era, which I kind of uh, I got a little bit from Nick's piece as well, which tipped me to to feeling that way about Griffey as well, but. Those are two that really jumped out to me. Cal Ripken, a little bit the same, obviously just growing up near Baltimore and the streak and everything that meant. But if he had gone out with the streak, I think it would have been a little – once again, I think, Rob, you make a good point. The last year or two of, of Cal's career was certainly uh, not like the prime for sure. So I don't know. I think those are some of the names that definitely jump out to me. Yeah, and I mean, I think kind of going back to one of Rob's points was that these guys do trail off for the last year or two of their career. And I think that happens a lot because 
the same competitiveness that makes them great, the same competitiveness that that we all admire, that that competitiveness is the reason that we, you know, that we become so invested in them. Well, that's the same competitiveness that doesn't let them walk away until kind of, you know, they're, they kind of have to sit down and realize, I can't physically play baseball anymore. So it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword, and it can be double-edged in more ways than one. Yeah, looking ahead, guys, are there any players that are going to make you feel this way again down the road? Because just thinking out loud a little bit, I know Ryan Zimmerman's probably going to make me feel that same way when he retires with the Nationals just because I followed his whole career. And, and I think Bryce Harper's probably going to do the same thing to me way down the road, I hope, because just watching him and observing him since he was 14 or 15 years old and kind of seeing the transition, or that's not the right word, but seeing the whole process of the evolution of what he's going to become is probably going to do that to me down the road well ryan i follow the pirates nobody good will end their career in pittsburgh so no <laughs> i don't know i think mccutcheon stays there for a career i think he does i'll tell you the only way and this is sort of foreshadowing what we might talk about with steven strasburg is his free agent year is part of that ridiculous 2018 class and he may make the determination that you know, he's going to be up against Harper and a bunch of other guys that there may not be the money from Boston, New York, L.A., you know, any other big spending teams. But if McCutcheon stays, yeah, I, to be honest with you, I am married to probably the biggest McCutcheon fan in our part of New York. So um, I, I, I kind of, you know, I can outsource all the grief about his retirement to her. Uh well, maybe let's use that as the transition point to talk about uh, the Steven Strasburg signing and extension this week. Maybe that's a perfect segue to try to use it for. So um, I try not to crowbar my Nationals fandom too much into the show, but uh, I did want to get your guys' take uh, both in New York and being a Pittsburgh fan and being in Boston and being a Red Sox fan, what you thought of the extension, both the numbers and when you heard it. Um, Maybe let's start with Nick. We started with Rob the last time. Um, so, kind of looking at looking at the numbers, I thought it was a very a very fair deal. Um, that was before I heard about the deferrals. The deferrals kind of made me, you know, kind of made me think it's a little more team friendly. But otherwise, it's you know, twenty five million a year for a pitcher who's had Tommy John. So there's more injury risk there than there is, let's say, David Price. And, you know, $25 million, it's not the top of the pitcher market, but it's close enough for me to where, because it's an extension, you have to give a little, you know, you have to not take a free agent deal because you won't get, you won't get the team's best offer until you reach free agency. And, but also it is a deal that, signifies that the Nationals are going to pay Strasburg to be at the front end of the rotation for the next seven years. So money-wise and with the opt-outs, I think it's a very, it's a deal that makes sense to me. Um, but when I heard it, I was just surprised because I, I would have not thought that a Scott Boris client would take, a, would take, an, ex, take an extension so close to um, so close to free agency, just because Scott Boris is very smart at 
getting his players into the open market and kind of guiding them through that to get the to get the best opportunity for them. So, but I think from the Nationals' perspective and Strasburg's perspective, I think it's a pretty solid deal. Uh, Rob, your take. Well, you know, when I first heard of it, your, your question, Ryan, I was a little surprised by the length of the dollars just because I really remember well the day that, you know, when his uh, UCL went boom and Dibble said he was being a wimp. And um, I was listening last season. I was driving around my car on, with Sirius XM listening to the Nationals game when, what was it, an oblique injury he had? Was it last summer, Ryan? Uh, he was definitely dealing with a foot last summer and or last year and some kind of, yeah, rib, oblique, something in that area. Yeah, he was nicked I, I was up. listening to yes. that game, and I could hear the announcer saying that they could see him grimacing, and he came out of the game, then he went on the DL. And so I probably had an unfair view of him as being injury-prone. But, boy, he sure has been good since, since he came back from that. I'm not about players just they have mercy they're all mercenaries and they have no loyalty to the team they just go to wherever the biggest dollar is i think this is a case where pretty clearly the loyalty that the nationals showed to strasburg and you know to boris by shutting him down um in 20 was it 2012 yes um i think that they got rewarded for that and i think that that you know I think he would have gotten more had he gone elsewhere, given that he was the only big name pitcher that was going to be a free agent this, you know, th- this coming off season. Um, and he gave the Nationals what I think is effectively a hometown discount because of the loyalty they showed him. He showed some back, and I think that to that degree, it's kind of a nice story for baseball. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I was saying to Rob off air that this was legitimately one of the first holy s moments. I'll, I'll make Ken's life a little easier that I've had in a long time uh, in baseball. I, I've so many people have asked me, "Well, what's going to happen with Strasburg? What's going to happen with him?" And uh, my stock answer is, "Well, he's going to free agency, and he's probably going to someplace on the West Coast. I mean, back home, so to speak." And right. uh, to have that announcement go on in the middle of the game and was just absolutely stunning to me. You know, he's four months away from free agency. I think he's probably the top free agent available if he gets to free agency. I mean, we can argue Cespedes or, uh, you know, Carlos Gomez perhaps or some of the other hitters, but he was definitely the top free agent pitcher. And I thought he was in line as is going to be a 28-year-old for a seven- or eight-year deal, maybe even eight at, you know, $25-plus million a year. I mean, I thought the first number was going to be a two in terms of the uh, the dollar amount with this deal. And you look at it with the, the way – you know, time value of money and everything else. It's, I'm very surprised that he didn't get more money, and I'm surprised that that he signed it. Frankly, but that said, I think Nick, you make a lot of great points when you're analyzing the deal. Of this is a guy that's got more risk than normal. I mean, he's the only guy that's had Tommy John surgery aside from Jordan Zimmerman, and I think gotten over a hundred million dollar contract. So there was some risk involved. He is going to be a lot younger than the average free agent to hit the market, though. So. I think the Nationals did pretty well with this signing, but that said, I mean, we could all, I, that statement could look incredibly foolish if he gets hurt in, you know, six months from today. Yeah, and I think Rob brought up a good point when he said, you know, the Nationals showed some 
great loyalty to him by shutting him down in 2012 and not overtaxing him. And I think that may have come into play here as well because he has the opt-out after, I believe, this is age 31 and age 32 seasons. Or I might be off by a year I think in it's, either direction I think it's there. 30 and 31. Well, 30 and 31. So it might make sense to, you know, to pitch for another couple of years and still get paid pretty well to do so. But then you can opt out re-enter the market with um, some fantastic seasons and healthy seasons on your record and, you know, get the big deal then. So maybe, so maybe you know, the age factor that you mentioned that could have very well helped get this deal done because he knows that with the opt-out, he can very well score another high $100 million to $200 million deal in a few years, which... Again, with the um, with the injury risk with pitchers, you don't want to exactly be banking on that. But but um, that's a great point, Nick. I mean, he's given himself a floor of one hundred and seventy-five million dollars. But the, I, I think we could all agree he's taken a major step forward in the last twelve months as a pitcher. I mean, the last I don't know fifteen to twenty starts of last season and the first dozen or so this year, if he's there, maybe ten. He's a much better pitcher than he was before the numbers say it and you just look at him on the mound maybe like you say he collects that money he makes 25 million in the next three years and then sets himself up when you know maybe the money in the game is a lot is a lot different maybe maybe ace pitchers are going for 40 million dollars a year then and, and like you say maybe he signs then for another mega deal yeah and and also if if that was what he and Boris were thinking Doing it with the Nationals makes sense because, again, like Rob pointed out, they are going to look after him as, you know, they're going to look after his arm and make sure that he's, you know, and not basically run him into the ground over the next few years and then be like, okay, if you opt out, okay, that's it. We got, you know, we got our usage out of the arm and someone else can now go pay you that mega deal, so... Once again, good point. I mean, if you have $175 million invested in somebody, you're not going to run him into the ground. So, great point. I mean, they have incentive to keep him on the hill. That, great take, Nick. Rob, uh, yeah. Rob anything else or anything you want to add to this? The, the only, just a question for you, Ryan. Rizzo and Boris already have a pretty good working relationship, right? Yes, although I would even take it higher than that, and I would say that the ownership level is really where that relationship is with with Ted Lerner, Mr. Lerner, uh, his right. son, and Boris. I mean, I, it seems to me that that's really how this deal got started. Was the Lerners reached out through Rizzo and said, "Hey, is, is Stephen interested in something?" And it it sounds like Stephen said, "Yeah, I want to stay." And it took a little while to get you know everything done, but I think that's kind of the way it went. Is if you read the media reports. I was also kind of surprised that, like, this deal just kind of got dropped out of nowhere. It's not like there'd been, you know, a couple weeks build up where everyone's, where it's being reported, okay, they're talking, and the talks seem to generally be going well, maybe something get done here. It's kind of got, at least from my perspective, for me, for me, I feel like it just kind of got dropped, you know, dropped down on a weekday night where suddenly it's like, oh, crap, Strasburg just you know, signed a mega deal. And it was announced by Chelsea Janes, who is the beat reporter for the Washington Post for the Nationals, not, you know, the Ken Rosenthal's or the John Morosi's or John Heyman or, you know, the newsbreakers that we think of. Another good point is 
this kind of, I mean, she broke the news and it was really out of nowhere. Yeah. Now a cynical view of that might be, um, I heard Jim Duquette say this, gee, a signing gets announced in the middle of a game. Who's the agent again? <laughs> you know, does this sort of smack? I mean, grand, different circumstance, but you know, the A-Rod opt-out announced in the middle of the World Series game, I think the Boris probably had something to do with the timing as well. I saw somebody on Twitter said, boy, Strasburg is amazing. He's pitching a shutout and he just signed a contract extension. <laughs> yeah, I, sure. I mean, and, and I'm not cynical enough to not think that it, it gets leaked from that side, sure. But I don't know. I, I That's a good take. I don't have really anything to counter that. That's a good point. But yeah, that, I mean, in terms of um, Strasburg's, um, the night that Strasburg had that night, I I don't think there are too many players in the majors who can honestly say they've ever had a better um, a better evening. So, yeah, <laughs> well said. All right, guys, uh, l- let's move ahead a little bit. Um, uh, let's quickly. I, I want to stay with the Nats because it's been a crazy week. Um, the Harper Bryce Harper on Sunday, I guess, sets a major league record for getting on base seven times without actually hitting a baseball. And the following night, the same game that we were alluding to with the Strasburg extension, he gets thrown out of the game for chirping at the umpire. We've got that we can talk about. Or we've also got Max Scherzer's 20-strikeout game on Wednesday night. Um, I'll just throw it out there. Where do we want to start? Um, (laughs) Rob, lead us off. Well, I'll tell you, the the Scherzer game, um, I was watching that night the Pirates game which was a hit-by-pitch fest. There were six guys getting hit, and they're, well, let's just say I'm not a huge fan of the Pirates TV broadcast team because they were kind of, they, they were celebrating kind of every hit-by-pitch. And so it was such a nice thing to see the crawl at the screen saying that uh, at that point Scherzer had, I can't remember how many strikeouts, to be able to switch to that game. That was pretty exciting. And the thing that, you know, is impressive about Scherzer other than, you know, that he did, he had all these strikeouts was how few pitches he threw and how many of them were strikes. He wasn't like, you know, this wasn't a Nolan Ryan type game where he's walking a bunch of guys as well. He was dialed in and, you know, the Tigers batters had to be coming to the plate knowing this guy was going to be in the zone. And they still couldn't put wood on the ball. It was pretty amazing to watch. If I remember right, I think it was 96 strikes and 23 total balls thrown in a nine-inning game, which is exceptional. Yeah, yeah, crazy. Crazy numbers. And I I just, I mean, the fastball was unbelievable and the slider was really going. I mean, and it was fun to see. I mean, he had, I think, 15 through through about six or seven, and you started really thinking that this could happen. Yeah, he, he he was just in a different zone. I mean, quite honestly, I just I can't I just I can't remember seeing a um, seeing a pitching outing where the pitcher was just completely in the zone like um, Scherzer was that night. It's he's he's an example of for the Nationals a big pitching deal that so far looks like it's working out pretty good for them. So. And to be to play the cynical, you know, the Nationals fan, that's probably his fourth best outing as a National. Right. I mean, the 17 strikeout no hitter 
is probably the best. The one, the other no hitter and then the one hitter are probably better than the twenty strikeout game because he gave up two home runs in the game. It won to Iglesias, which I still can't believe it won over the wall. Right. <laughs> and uh, obviously the JD Martinez was pretty legitimate in, in the ninth inning, but that was uh, it's just exceptional what Scherzer's doing when he's right. And I heard somebody saying this on uh, MLB radio last night, but I think we wouldn't be surprised if this was Kershaw doing these type of performances. But, you know, Scherzer's great, but he's sixth or seventh best pitcher in baseball, I would say, somewhere in that range. And, goodness, he's put up four performances in the last year and change that have been truly exceptional. Yeah, I feel like when people list off, like, the the elite pitchers in the league, like Scherzer's name gets brought up, but it always gets it, it always gets brought up towards the end because, of course, you know you start the list. It's going to be Ariada, Kershaw, Sale, you know, to lead it off. But and he's kind of like thrown, kind of thrown in on the end. Like, yes, he's a great pitcher, but he's not just you know. There's just that little bit more that separates him from you know the Kershaws of the league. I, I, uh, but he's he's shown, like you say, he's shown four times over the past. What um, season and a third, season and a quarter, that he is capable of reaching heights that, of reaching heights that only those you know, very few select pitchers can have a realistic shot of reaching. I mean, his fastball command and control are are maybe the best in baseball, particularly when he's on. I mean, what he was doing the other night was just exceptional. I mean, because for the most part. And I think the reason we don't put him quite in the same class as, as Kershaw and some of the guys is he doesn't have that incredibly nasty second pitch. I mean, his slider is very good. The changeup's fine. The curve is pretty good. But he doesn't have that, you know, Kershaw's really hammer breaker, the slider right. from sale. I mean, I think that's maybe why, which also puts me into he does a lot of these great performances living off a of fastball, which is fun to watch and also very different than maybe some of the game that we see from other guys. But yeah. I mean, you want to talk about nasty though. His the fourth inning at bat he put together when Miguel Cabrera was at the plate. That was that's I can't believe how bad he made Cabrera look there. Yeah, Cabrera just started shaking his head. I mean, it wasn't the, one of those like I'm going to get you next time. It was just like, what in the world are you doing right now? Right. So, um, let, let's move forward, guys, because I do want to touch a little bit on uh, MLB Plus. Uh, and some of uh, what is going on with that product. So, um, Rob, let me start with you, and uh, let's talk a little bit. I know you watched a game, or you've watched a couple games in this format. Well, I've, I've watched them sort of on time delay. The gripe, and I actually sent a tweet to Mike Petriello complaining about this. I believe that every MLB Plus game that's been shown so far has been a Yankees game, and it's I think because they're using the... Um, MLB TV studios in New York, and I happen to live in a Yankees blackout area, so I don't get to see those games. I was so interested in seeing one of these. They had one this week against Kansas City. I got up early the next day to watch the game, you know, the day after, to see what it was like. And I liked it a lot. And for people listening who don't know what this is, MLB Plus, it's a broadcast of the game. And, you know, it's a, they have in-studio announcers, and they're talking about what's going on in the game. But they show pretty much all the contemporaneously recorded StatCast data, and they've got Mike Petriello from MLB.com, used to write for Fangraphs, who's, and he's got a real good podcast where he talks about StatCast as well, um, explaining a lot of it. 
And Will Leach, who's a Sports on Earth uh, writer, also kind of talking about the data versus, you know, the, the play on the field. And what I really like about it is two things. First of all, I like being able to see all that data that a lot of us don't really have the ability to look at. But secondly, I think those two guys do a really good job of talking down the data sufficiently so that the average fan can kind of understand it and get a grasp of it without losing uh, you know, contact with the flow of the play. But secondly, for guys like us, and I imagine most people listening to it, it's, it's a high enough level that we can get something about it, get something from it as well. So they're not just talking about what the exit velocity was on a hit and what the launch angle was, but how those two combine to make a batted ball really likely to become an out or go over the fence or become a base hit. And I think it's a pretty exciting product. It's not the same as just watching the game with the familiar broadcasters just talking about the game on the field and, you know, exchanging anecdotes that, you know, we can see for 162 games a year um, on the, whatever the local broadcast is. But it's a way of taking the data to another level that I think what they've done is they've been able to also keep up with the flow of play of the game a little bit better than I don't know if either of you guys watched the Fox Sport 1 uh, broadcast during the playoffs last year that Rob Nyer and CJ Nitkowski and I can't remember who else. I think the MLB Plus broadcasts have been done a good job of mirroring the stats with, you know, letting you know what the balls and strikes are and who's at bat and where the ball's getting hit. Yeah, let me ask you, because you brought up uh, that point of, I, I watched a couple of the games last year on the Fox Sports 1. I haven't watched the MLB Plus yet. What has been the difference, the improvements that you've seen, and, and that kind of thing? I think the biggest thing is that they've got a real, I forget who it is, I'm sorry about this, but they've got a play-by-play announcer who actually is calling the play-by-play. My wife watched a couple innings of the Fox Sports 1 thing with me, and she said, I don't know what's going on in the game. And it's easy to get kind of buried in the statistics or really it's the explanation of the stats um, and lose the flow of the game. And I think that's the biggest lesson that they learned at MLB+. Petriello and Leach uh, do a good job of not talking over the actual action of the game. Mm, that's interesting. What? Uh, and, and I want to get Nick in here in a second as well. But what was the... I don't know the the word coolest is is a terrible word, but what was the coolest feature that you've that you saw on the MLB Plus, or what was the thing that really kind of got your uh, piqued your interest? Yeah, and you know, Ryan, I'm just thinking in here. The other thing that they're able to do on the MLB Plus broadcast is they're not trying to explain everything. They're not explaining what OPS is. They're not explaining what WAR is, what WR. They're not trying to introduce every advanced metric. Mostly, it's just a discussion of what the Statcast numbers are. And in a way, you know, they're they're all kind of single dimensionals, how fast a guy is, you know, how, what angle was the ball hit. And so that makes it a little simpler. What I think the, the coolest thing to be able to see for me real time, um, the launch angle exit velocity stuff is neat, but you do get some of that on regular broadcast. When I can't remember, was it Kane? Somebody made a really nice play in the outfield. And the breakdown of that from, you know, reaction time, maximum speed, root efficiency, that all the 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 metrics that they've got, particularly for outfield play, which is, you know, it's kind of cooler to watch because the guy runs such a long distance. <laughs> I I think that's that's really interesting to see. And the thing that 
Petriello does a great job of, I think, is bringing things into context. So if he says that so-and-so's root efficiency on the play was 98%, say, he'll also throw in what the average root efficiency is. So you can say, wow, that's really a lot better, rather than just throwing out some number and I say, gee whiz, but what does it mean? That's a great point. And that's always been my thing is with these Sabre numbers is you if you just throw out the number, it has no context. But if you can give people a context of what good is, then all of a sudden you may not even have to understand the metric necessarily to understand, oh, okay, that's good or that's bad, so to speak. Yeah, you know, I get just one example of that. Uh, and I apologize for keep bringing the Pirates into it. The wild card game last year, I think the hardest hit ball of that game was Starling Marte blistered a ball. It was like 100 and I think it was over 110 miles an hour in the game. I don't remember exactly, but in that vicinity. Now, if you just say, wow, he really hit that ball, it sounds, you know, it sounds like a, a Giancarlo Stanton home run. But in fact, he really hit that ball directly um, at, I can't remember who, I think it was at short. But, you know, it became an out. And what Petriello will do is he'll say, yeah, it's good to hit the ball hard, but if your launch angle is below 15 degrees, it's probably going right to a fielder anyway. Right. So to bring in that context, I think, really helps fill it out. And it doesn't, you know, by by bringing in the context of what a hard hit ball means or what a launch angle means and all that stuff, you don't add that many words. You don't detract from the play-by-play. But I think you make it all a lot more understandable to both the casual and the advanced fan. Yeah. Uh, Nick, I want to tag you in. Uh, any thoughts or any questions you want to uh, jump in with? Um, I So I haven't had a, really a chance to check this out yet. Just a few, you know, kind of, you know, some clips, some clips here or there, but it sound, it definitely sounds awesome. I think that just in general, in terms of sports media, we're going to be transitioning into kind of these alternate forms of broadcast um, because, like, this year for the um, college basketball national championship, you had the like the the official in air quotes broadcast, and then each you know on a different channel, each team. Know, was each team's like pair of announcers so if you wanted to watch the Villanova announcers call the game and or the North Carolina announcers you could do that so I think this is a great a great way for baseball to use the fact that you have this awesome stat cast system you just have in general the not all the numbers and data just that are in a baseball game versus a basketball or a football game and being able to integrate them, and from what Rob said, it integrated in a very, you know, in a very easy to understand and informative manner. I think, I, I think it's definitely a plus, and I'm glad that um, MLB has, is using the Statcast system for to kind of help fans understand the game more instead of just you know collect data for um, the 30 friend offices to use and break down. Right. Yeah. Great take, guys. Um, I think this is a good place for us to cut the conversation this week. Um, I've really enjoyed it, um, covering a lot of ground. So uh, let's kind of end the show the same way we begin each week and kind of remind everybody uh, what your Twitter handle is, where they can find your work, and uh, anything in between. Uh, I think we started with uh, Nick earlier, so let's start with Rob. Rob, uh, say goodbye to the Internet, so to speak. Yeah, and thanks for having me again, Ryan. Always great to talk baseball with you. Um, Rob Maines, you can find my work at Banished to the Pen, and I write about the Pirates at onthefieldofplay.com. Twitter, I'm Cran, C-R-A-N underscore boy. 
Very cool. And uh, once again, congratulations on the uh, your recent work at Baseball Prospectus. I'm uh, I always am reading that stuff. And if you want insights into the Pirates, uh, I can't recommend your blog enough. Uh, I definitely anytime something happens with the Pirates, I definitely am wandering over there and seeing what your take is. So uh, great job uh, with Thanks, your recent Ryan. work. So uh, Nick, same thing. Say goodbye, my friend. Uh, so before I say goodbye, I just want to say, Ryan, thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure. And Rob, it was very nice to get to meet you, talk a little baseball with you. Same here, um, Nick. So, yeah, so you can find my work um, over at Banners to the Pen, um, on Twitter, at CostTheBoss34. And, yeah, bye, Internet. Very cool. Well, hopefully uh, by the time we talk to you next, you'll have completed your internship and we will almost have you uh, out of school, my friend. Oh, man. Uh, It's coming fast. Yeah. Uh, Cherish the time. It's it's a lot of fun in college. It's not that much fun when you get out. So. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, thank you so very much. Uh, I I always appreciate it. And uh, I especially appreciate the time on a Sunday morning recording. So thank you, guys. And... uh, I look forward to having you guys on sometime later this season. Sounds great. Thanks. And that was episode 53 of the Banish to the Pen podcast with my special guests, Nick Koss and Rob Maines. I want to thank them both for joining me. Uh, that was a lot of fun covering the uh, the biggest topics in the baseball world. So thanks, guys, for coming on and uh, look forward to having you guys on later this season. Um, Before I get out of here, I want to thank uh, everybody associated with Banish to the Pen, the writers, the contributors, the technical staff, uh, everybody who uh, puts together a very good product uh, day in and day out. I'm very proud of uh, the work that we are producing at Banish to the Pen, and uh, we're seeing a lot of our writers go on to uh, bigger and and, you know more uh, well-known platforms, just like Rob has. So, um, congratulations to those guys and. uh, I want to thank and congratulate everybody that's working with Banish to the Pen because we're really doing a uh, doing a great work and putting together a good product. So thank you very much. And uh, with that, be nice to your fellow listeners.